you would listen again as they pick up in chapter 3 of Ruth. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it, but if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Amen. Thank you, guys. I hope that was um, just a helpful opportunity, a, a different way to look and, and to hear um, Scripture. Um, so in the news over the past uh, few weeks, um, there has been this um, really difficult and stressful uh, story of, of the soccer team, the, the junior soccer team from Thailand, that on a Saturday afternoon um, after, after practice, they went out exploring uh, together, and they decided to check out a, a cave um, that some of them had not been to, and so they, they're walking around in the tunnels of this, um, of this cave, and after about an hour or so, they, they find that the cave has flooded, and so they need to turn and go back, and on trying to go back, they realize um, that, that they don't have a way out, um, that, that it is flooded and such that the way that they came in is now um, is now blocked, and so they had to basically just retreat to a spot where they could and, and wait, and they, and they were stuck there, uh, not knowing what was going on um, around them, what, what people knew or didn't know about where they were. Um, besides, you know, being trapped, this is a time of year when rain could come at any moment, um, and so they didn't know if it was going to flood more, if the water was going to rise. In fact, at one point, they started to hear water, and the coach advised the boys we've we got to try to find a way out. We, we've got to dig our way out. We've got to find a way out, which, I mean, of course, is um, not, not something that would, have been, that would have been possible. And so for two and a half weeks, they were trapped in this cave until finally one day they were rescued by some divers. And, and, and fortunately, on the, on the good side, they were all of the team and the coach were rescued. Unfortunately, um, one of the divers did pass away in the rescue uh, attempt. But when you think about that idea, when you try not to think about that idea, that concept of being trapped inside a cave, nowhere to go, nothing to do, but only to wait and to, and to wait for someone else, that's a, that's a nightmare of, of a situation to be in and to be in for that long. We, we would not want to imagine what it was like to be a, a parent or a loved one, much less the boys themselves being in that situation. Um, and we praise God that in this, in this case, in this incident, they, they were rescued. What I'm going to talk about this morning is, is the idea of us finding ourselves in that place, not in, a, not in a physical, literal sense, but that we find ourselves in a spiritual sense, hopeless, without anywhere to turn but someone else, someone else to be the rescuer. And that is that's similar to the hopelessness that uh, Ruth and Naomi were finding themselves in. We, we heard specifically that from Naomi in chapter 1. Both of their husbands are gone. They have no source of food, provision, shelter, 
unless someone else comes to their aid. And so it's in that situation that Ruth suggests that she go and collect grain from the field of local farmers. So what she's, what she's referencing is a, is a command that's given in Leviticus 19, probably something that she had been, she had been taught about, um, but it was instructions given to farmers that when, they, when it came time to harvest their field, they weren't to harvest all the way out to the edges of their land. They were supposed to leave, essentially leave a margin around the outside of their land. And then another part was that after they had passed through once with the harvesting, they were not to go back a second time to pick up all they had missed. Obviously, in that process, you're going to miss some, you're going to drop some, it's going to fall off, whatever. Um, there would have been some left on the ground. And that was done, um, not randomly, but specifically, that was done so that the poor, so that the sojourner, um, people who are needy, would be able, would know of this law and would be able to come and collect and, and use that grain. And that's not, a, that's not a small thing. I mean, if you're a, if you're a business owner, you know one of the most important things that you do is find ways to maximize your profits. You want to make the most amount of money possible. That, that would not have been a good profit-building practice to leave some of your product behind. Um, even if you're somebody who, who just drops money on the floor, right? We all have, we all have different, uh, different places where our laziness, right, and our cheapness match. For me, it's like a penny. Anything above a penny, I'm, I'm picking it up. Uh, I, I might leave a penny. For, for some of you, you might be either more generous or more lazy than I am and leave more. But if it's a dollar, I'm, I'm for sure going after it, right? We all have those different places. Um, but here, they're instructed to leave it. But not just because, not so they wouldn't have to do the work, but they're to leave it out of generosity. And so early on, we learn something about Boaz, that he is not like the rest of the nation, as Owen mentioned last week, this is a time when people had essentially abandoned the Lord, um, that they were no longer doing what he called them to do. Um, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And so Boaz, even in that time, Boaz is found to still be doing what he's supposed to do, um, that, that he's still following the law. And so it says, as Ruth is walking, she happened upon this field. Um, she begins following his harvesters, picking up what they had missed. Um, now, knowing the rest of the story, we know that this wasn't a chance meeting. We, we know that happening upon this field wasn't by accident, that there was intentionality either by Ruth and Naomi or just by the Lord's sovereignty and provision. Um, this, is, this is a chance for them to meet um, in order that Boaz might encounter her, know of her story, and then place them on the trajectory that would lead to their redemption. And so in humility, she places herself in his care. And she asks permission to continue to glean in the fields. Um, his response shows us that, that he is not only someone who is following the law still, even in, this, even in this lawless time, but that he is actually someone who follows because he knows God's heart. And he knows the point of this law was not simply to just be some arbitrary law to allow for obedience, but this law was to teach him generosity. It was there so his people would be a generous people. And so in the case of Boaz, it, it works. He learns that lesson of generosity because not only does he allow her to continue, he tells her, stay in my field. You don't even need to spread around what you're picking up. Stay in my field. I will provide enough for you. Be close to my maids. 
so that you will be safe, you'll be taken care of. He actually he allows her to drink from the water that they're, that they're using in the field. And he commands his servants to keep her safe. Don't lay a hand on her. And it doesn't stop there. He, he, goes, he goes further. He feeds her dinner that night, and he tells his workers, hey, I, I want you guys to start intentionally leaving some behind, right? I, I want you to, as you're, as you're moving along, leave some here, leave some there to make sure that she has plenty for her and to take back to Naomi. So given the other descriptions of, of the nature of the people um, during this time, the nature of Israel, it's safe to say that Boaz is a rare find, um, that, that they easily could have gone to another field where they would have been run off, um, where they would have been given the bare minimum to, to be legally um, you know, holding true to this, to this practice. God had led them intentionally to this place where they were not needs, but their needs were not only met, but that they were overflowed with blessings that Boaz would go above and beyond to provide for them. And so Ruth does this, and she goes back, and she gives Naomi the report of what happens. And Naomi, if you'll remember from chapter 1, is, is the person who had essentially given in to despair. She had essentially decided that her life was cursed. Nothing good would happen to her. She tries to send, send the, her two daughters-in-law away, um, so that they might not be dragged in. She, she, is, she is essentially given up. And so when she hears this report, when she hears the name Boaz and she knows the implications that that is going to have, she begins to have hope. Her attitude begins to change. Um, when, I, when I was printing out the, um, the uh, handouts for them to read, um, I laughed when I um, when I gave Gayla hers, because chapter two, the part in chapter two, she has like three, three or four words, like there's almost nothing there. But then in chapter three, you see a change, because you see her begin to talk a lot more, because she begins to have hope, and so her plans expand. They expand beyond just having some opportunity for temporary um, sustenance, right? Her, her plans go far beyond just picking up the spares and the leftovers, and she, she decides that she's going to be bold, right? And she's not bold just because she has decided to be. She, she doesn't become bold because she's given herself some kind of pep talk. This was the result of seeing God work so obviously in her life that she had really no choice but to rejoice, but to, but to turn in her attitude and her heart and her mind and begin to see that there is something to be praised here, that my life is not over. She had hope because of what God had done. And so she, she decides to take action, and she informs, um, she informs Ruth of really a bold and a daring plan in order to change their lives forever. So she, she sends Ruth to the threshing floor uh, where Boaz would have been, been staying. So during this season, it's likely um, that Boaz and his workers would have stayed at the threshing floor. They would have stayed close to what they had harvested for the next, to move on to the next part of the process. One, just for security, so that nobody would come and steal what they had taken. Two, just so they could be there. Bright and early, it would be time for them to get up and go and begin to work. Um, and so they would actually stay and sleep in that place. And so Ruth goes and does as she is cold, and she, um, she lays at the feet of Boaz, and she uncovers his feet. Now, um, 
Un- unfortunately, there's a, there's a potential interpretation uh, of this part of the passage um, that would read this story and and call it a sexual advance on the part of uh, on the part of Ruth that that she's encouraged to dress up to put on perfume um, and go in the middle of the night in order to seduce Boaz physically. And they would even say that this, this act, the statement of uncovering his feet is more, uh, more of an innuendo than a, than a literal statement about what was happening. And there is a, there's a window for that interpretation, but it is a really small window. Um, it, it's a, it, it would be quite a stretch to walk away um, with that understanding of, of what's happening here. Um, in fact, the, the word that's used for his feet uh, or lower limbs even seems to be used intentionally to avoid um, that interpretation, that this is, a, this is an encounter of a sexual nature. Uh, the other times it's used in Scripture, it is, it is plainly used to mint the feet, the lower legs. Um, it's not meant to mean anything beyond that. And then you just combine it with the passages um, that are given this constant description of both Ruth and Boaz being virtuous people, being people who have the character of God. And so it would be entirely out of character and out of place in this story um, that is clearly meant to be a praiseworthy story to suddenly just have this departure into sexual immorality. And so that, that can kind of become a distraction as you're reading commentaries, you're reading people who would interpret it that way. Um, but it is something we, ha- we have to address because um, it just does not seem like that's what's going on here. Um, it, it's pretty clear that she was pure in her intentions um, as she went to that place. So that being handled, Ruth is there for a purpose. She is there to challenge Boaz to go further than he has already gone in his generosity and to fulfill his role as the kinsman redeemer. Now, redeemer is a word that you, you will hear in church from time to time. Um, and, and yes, sometimes connected to the word kinsman. Close relative um, is another interpretation that you'll see in Scripture. And the concept of redeemer comes mostly from Leviticus 25, in which it lays out the idea that if someone becomes poor, somebody, somebody finds themselves um, in debt in order to pay their debts, a relative, excuse me, they, they, they sell their land or they sell their house in order to pay their debts. A redeemer, a close relative, someone who has the financial ability can come along and they can purchase that land back. They can purchase that house back in order to restore it to its original owner. And, and in this system, the, the person who took the land originally as payment for the debt, they, they have to take it. That has to be allowed. They're, they're kind of forced into that and, and to restore it to the original relative. The same system um, can also work in the scenario where someone becomes poor. Maybe they don't have land or they don't have anything to sell. Um, they, they can also go into servitude in order to pay off their debt. Um, and that they, they will spend years uh, working for the person in order to pay off their debt. Well, the same system can work that a redeemer can come and kind of calculate what they owed, maybe minus how long they've been working for them, and pull them out of servitude, right? Free them from that responsibility. Um, sometimes what would happen, somebody would sell themselves into this servitude, and um, as the years go by, the the, the master, the person who is owed the money, actually might even give one of his daughters to this person in, in marriage um, to be their wife. Well, that, that has certain implications with it, one being the bride price. 
that, that he, would have to, he would have to pay the father um, the bride price for marrying his daughter. What does that do? That increases his debt, right? That extends his time there. So again, another situation where a redeemer can come in, pay off that debt, pay off that bride price, and release them from that um, and then the explanation just seems to allow that the closer a relative is, the closer they are to you, they have first right of being that redeemer, being that person, and then it moves out until a redeemer can be found. So in, in this situation, the role of redeemer would um, include the piece of land that originally belonged to Naomi's husband. With it, Boaz is going to, is going to tie into that deal um, the idea of marrying Ruth, and because of their relation, also taking care of Naomi. Um, so what Ruth is asking of Boaz is, is not small. This is, again, I, I use that word bows for, bold for re- reason because um, it's a life-changing event. Boaz had already gone above and beyond what he had to in caring for them, but his actions this far, thus far, and, and, and the way that he talks about them shows that he's not bothered by this request. In fact, he seems to, he seems to even welcome it. Um, he's clearly impressed with her. He, he constantly is speaking well of her first, of how she cared for her own mother-in-law. Now, in, in the way that she is pursuing Boaz instead of younger men. And so, while often this, this kind of relationship can be more about providing for the widow, um, Boaz seems to have uh, some interest, right? He, he likes her. That's probably what's happening here is that, is that he likes her. Um, sometimes romance did not have to be involved in these kind of deals, um, but it looks, looks like there's some potential for that to be true here. And so his response is quick, that absolutely, he will pursue the opportunity to become her redeemer. Now, there are two problems here, two problems that, uh, that they're facing. One is, is clear and direct, and, we, and, and they deal with it in the passage. One is kind of in the background. It's a little more subtle. Um, the one that's more subtle is that of Ruth's nationality. Uh, where did Ruth come from? Moab, right? She's a Moabite. That's, that's been mentioned several times. Well, the, the law of Moses does not have good things to say about the Moabites. Um, it does not allow for really any interaction between the two nations. Deuteronomy 23 expressly, expressly forbids both Ammonites and Moabites from entering into the assembly of the Lord. In fact, it goes so far as to say even for many generations. So there was not a limited amount of time because they didn't help the Israelites when they were coming out of Egypt. In fact, they, they sought at different times to curse them and, and to do poorly to them. And so God intends for the Moabites to suffer for what they had done to his people, to be separated from the people of God. So here we have a problem. What about Ruth? Boaz has taken care of her, first of all, but now he's seeking to marry her. Was he wrong to do that? He, he certainly knew her origin. He had been told that from the very beginning. It had been mentioned several times. What we learn from Boaz is that he is not simply memorized the letter of the law, but rather that he has used that law to teach him about God and who God is. That he had, he had read provisions like the ones dealing with harvesting, and he exercised them not because he just wanted to be obedient and get his good marks, but because they had taught him to care for the poor, to care for the traveler, to care for the widow, that, that in the world, 
those people are a burden. But in God's eyes, they have value. They are worth being protected and cared for. And so instead of using this as an excuse, using the law as an excuse to, uh, to not take care of them or to pass them off on someone else, he chooses this as an opportunity to put God's love on display, God's mercy. So, so to be willing to take on the responsibility of this family so that they might be saved from their current circumstance. Jesus gives some direction about how, to, how we should approach these kinds of things in, in Matthew 23 when he's interacting with some Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Definitely don't want to be on the receiving end of that kind of statement from Jesus, right? And, and this is an incredibly telling description of the nature of the Old Testament. The Old, the Old Testament often gets this reputation of just being a collection of, of rules, right? That's when God was mean and now he's nice. You know, you, you get all those kinds of interpretations. Um, but Jesus and Boaz are showing us that, that that's not true, that the purpose of the law is to reveal God and his character to us. That his character is one of justice and mercy and faithfulness. So Boaz understood that. And so he was able to take that knowledge that he had of God, applying it to this situation and realize that it is good for him to pursue Ruth. In fact, Ruth is, is no longer identifying as a Moabite, but as a follower of the one true God, the God of Naomi, as she proclaimed in chapter 1. So therefore, she's become a child of God and is worthy of protection and provision, and in this case, marriage. Now, to, to be perfectly honest, I, I hesitated to, to talk about this point. Um, parts of it make me a little bit nervous because Everyone in this room, myself very much included, we're all sinners. And we all have hearts that are deceitful. And so with, with, any, um, with any sinner, we are prone to take the freedoms that God gives us and do what? Abuse them. Right? We're often looking for ways to justify ourselves, our own sin, and to move in the direction that we want to go. So you could potentially, with kind of what we've just talked about, you could take other parts of Scripture and say, well, that's not really what God means. I'm going to twist it and I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it work with what I want to do. Right? Just, just to be clear, that is, that is in no way what I am hoping you will get from this story, in no way what I'm trying to give permission to do. We have been given the gift of grace in having the whole counsel of God. And so what we get to do is we get to use the whole Scripture to inform our decisions, to look at circumstances and say, what, is, what does God value here? What does he want me to do here based on my relationship with him? And so in this case, we get to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you've ever wondered, how do you understand what Scripture says? By far, the best way to interpret Scripture is with other Scripture. Books are helpful commentaries, sermons, all of those kinds of things are, are helpful. 
But by far, the best way to understand what Scripture is saying is to look at other areas of Scripture and see how they compare and how they come together. And so in this case, when we're asking the question, was Boaz wrong, we have many other passages, right, including what's going on around this story, um, but, but passages that speak well of Boaz. In fact, Boaz with Ruth are now included, as a result of this story, are now included in the genealogy of Christ alongside Rahab. Another example of someone who is not of Israelite origin being uh, had mercy on, someone who was outside of the Israelites. We see then, because of the support of other places in Scripture, Boaz was right. He was not wrong. He, he was right to pursue his role as Redeemer. And we are not just called to act according to the letter of the law, but to pursue a heart that is in line with the values and the characteristics that God values. And that's what allows us to interpret the law. So that's the first problem. The second problem being um, with, with Ruth and Boaz being together um, is actually another opportunity for us to see Boaz's integrity. Um, he knows that there is another family member um, that is closer to Naomi than he is. And according to Leviticus, this family member should have the first opportunity to be redeemer. So Boaz acts according to the will of God. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know that it's going to work out in his favor. But he knows that it is better by far to trust in God's sovereignty, to trust in God's plan and will, than to simply take and, and manipulate it in a way that he would want. And so he offers it to, uh, he offers the deal to um, the closer redeemer, the one that was closer to Naomi. And originally, this other relative sees a business opportunity. He says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take the land. And then Boaz, looking and seeking to care for Ruth and Naomi, says, hey, they also come with it. But that both of them are included. That anybody who takes this land needs to care, take and care for these. And this complicates things for the relative because now there's a burden attached to the land. And, and on top of that, there's this uh, expectation that he would take her on as a wife, um, to have children with her. And that begins to split up his inheritance. Uh, the children that he already has now having, to, now having to split that inheritance with the children that he has in Ruth. And so clearly he's, he's not concerned with the well-being of Ruth or Naomi. He is concerned for himself. And that, that ultimately proves to be ironic because we know who Boaz and Ruth are. We don't have any idea who this guy is. Right? He, he missed, he exchanged this opportunity to be in the lineage of Christ because he was selfish. He was looking for himself. And so in sin, he passes and he allows Boaz to take on the role of redeemer. Then Boaz, of course, he follows through on his promise, not only to take the land, um, that's, that's all that was required of him to do, um, but also make her his wife so that she might be fully restored, um, able to have children, able to produce a lineage. And just like we did last week in chapter 1, we're able to see God at work, obviously directly in this story. We see what's going on as people interact, but this also serves as an, as an illustration to us about what it is to have a Redeemer. So as we, as we finish up this morning, I just want to hit a few, uh, a few things on the idea and the concept of redemption that we learn from this story. The first one being redemption begins with desperation and hopelessness. 
that, that in following Christ, we often want to see the rescue without having to focus on what we've been rescued from. And I would argue that we can't fully understand our redemption unless we also fully understand the total helplessness of our state in our sin. That for us to fully appreciate what God has done for us, we have to know where we have come from. And we see that. We see that we struggle to understand that when we're walking through despair and darkness, right? There's rarely our response is to praise, is to rejoice, of welcoming the difficulty. That's understandable because it's, it's hard. It's not an easy thing. But there's a reason that James tells us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, right? Because those are opportunities for us to see our state and our need for a savior, our need for a redeemer. There are times when God allows us to feel the pressure of despair, the pressure of pain, of fruitlessness, not only in external things, but also also internally. If you've ever wondered why God would allow you to to go through a season of, of distance from him, of walking away from his word unchanged, I would encourage us to consider that those times are meant to be an opportunity to remember our sin and to remember where we have come from. We need to not only reflect on where we're going, but where we've been. Remembering that that we and our sin have been trapped in a cave like those boys, unable to save ourselves, desperately trying to impossibly crawl out of the cave until someone can come along and do the rescuing for us. We have to have the mindset of one who has is, who is lost loved ones, lost the provision of food, of shelter, of protection, fearful of whatever's going to come next for us to understand what it is for our Redeemer to come. To come to save us from our situation, to stack food on our back and, and promise to care for us. Redemption can't happen unless it starts there. Zephaniah 3.19 says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise. Until we understand, until we fully embrace our role in the story as the lame and the outcast, we can't be redeemed. And why? That's our second point, is that redemption is for the bold and the humble. That seems an odd connection Um, to be made but the bible is full of desperate people crying out to be rescued right the the woman who comes and touches jesus garment the leper who kneels before him asking to be healed those people knew their status knew that they were desperate and that caused them to be bold naomi and, and ruth developed this plan that is risky that is bold boaz could have responded in other ways Right? He, he, could have, he, could have, he didn't owe them anything else. He could have sent them away. But their boldness led them to a place to be rescued. And that boldness was not in themselves. It didn't come from themselves. It was laced with humility, throwing themselves at his mercy, putting their entire hope and future in his hands, trusting that the Lord would use him to be their rescuer. Coming from a place of desperation leads us to find the place to need to be bold. If we are bold in the Lord, there will be action. There will be opportunities to put ourselves out there, to put our well-being on the line and trust 
in God. God is gracious to us. He gives us reasons to be encouraged, right? Had he not given the message that Ruth brought Naomi, she would have continued in her despair. She would not have had hope, and she would not have been bold and been spurred into action. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, what are things that are happening around us that should embolden us, that should give us hope, that should spur us into action like it did for her. Uh, an example that, that I have in my life um, is Brother Stu. I don't know how many of you know Stu, and he doesn't necessarily like to be recognized. He and I have not known each other very long. We don't have long, extensive conversations, but, but occasionally we get a chance to say hello to each other, and he never, he never gives me that Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Like he never gives me the, the five-second version. Usually when I come up to Stu and I say, hey, Stu, how's it going? I'm about to get 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 seconds of uh, the most gospel-saturated, grace-oriented response that I can think of. I walk away from those 30 seconds more encouraged than I am from reading, you know, entire books, right? And, and what I take from that is that he is mindful of the things around him he is mindful of grace's work in his life so that when he he when he looks at situations when he looks at the world when he looks at difficulty god has given them him the ability to think of grace and hope and boldness and so that's why we have to hear the the gospel so many times the basic message of the gospel is not just for the lost to hear right it is for us to be reminded of over and over and over again that in our walk we might be kept in the Lord. When, when the Bible tells us that we are kept in the faith or that, that Jesus who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, he does it by surrounding us with people and words that remind us of the gospel, that we might find hope in it and be emboldened that God is working in us. And that brings, brings us to the last point, and that is redemption is approved by God. So, so far in this illustration of the kinsman redeemer, we focused on kind of the financial redemption that comes from paying off a debt or buying back land that was sold uh, in property. There's another kind of redemption that exists, but it has slightly different rules. Um, so far, the debtor, yeah, the debtor comes into financial trouble, not because they've done anything morally wrong, but just because they don't have any money or, or some, some circumstances brought them to that point. The system changes when someone comes into a kind of moral debt. So moral debt would be instead of just owing money, someone comes into your house, they break in your window, they punch you in the nose, and they, and they take all your money and run away, right? That person has gone beyond just having financial debt to you. They have moral debt. And so in that system, in, in, in that kind of a problem, they are under you or whoever is offended is under no obligation to receive the gift of the Redeemer. That if a Redeemer comes and says, hey, I want to make all of that stuff right, because there is moral debt, you don't, you don't have to take it. You don't have to receive that payment. That's the situation that we're in with God. It's not just financial debt. It is moral debt. We have wronged him. We have done wrong to him. And Jesus has come, and he offers to be our redeemer, and he does all the work in the payment of restoring all that wrong, and God willingly accepts it. That even though he doesn't have to, he happily and joyfully accepts it. 
welcoming us back with open arms. There can be no greater instance of gratitude and relief but to be fully aware of our position before God. To know that Christ would come and die on the cross in order to pay back what we owe to make, to make it right and then for God our Father to accept that payment and to welcome us back in. If anything can encourage you this morning, that has to be it. That in light of all that you have done against him, he looks at you and promises ownership and belonging to you. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. In just a minute, we're going to pray and, and sing a song um, of, of praise. I, I, I pray that you would take that time to look at, look at what's going on in your life, what's, what's going on in your heart and your relationship to the Lord. Are you grateful? Are you emboldened by the gratitude that you have? Are you aware that God loves you and he accepts the payment of your Redeemer? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you for who you are. That you would give us the story of Ruth not as just a moral lesson, but as as an example, an illustration of where our hope can be found. Not in a a man-made redeemer, but in your son. God, I pray that we would trust in him. We would understand our hopelessness. How desperate we are. That we would be emboldened by the work of grace in our life. And that it would lead us to praise and glory of you. God, I pray that you would help us to increase in our love for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.